0: Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Well, it's a joy to be here, a privilege. It's exactly 40 years since I was first in this room in my first ever lecture as a student at Ridley College, as a part-time student in 1983. So here we are. Forty years later. Thank you, yes. <laughs> Somehow I've survived and maybe you will as well. <laughs> well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus is on trial. On trial by the Jewish leaders officially but on trial by Peter sitting at a distance and recorded for us in a sense, on trial for us. What is your verdict, they asked. It's in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter is at a distance and the the mention of Peter early on in verse 58 and then it comes back to Peter later sort of ties the two in an element of contrast and comparison. Who's on, Jesus is on trial by the Jewish leaders, in a way by Peter as well. An element of similarity, an element of contrast being painted here. We're told that the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony. That is, they recognise that they're trying to do something that's false, that's wrong. Maybe even the fact that they're in the middle of the night is itself false wrong and illegal. So they're trying to find some false testimony to put Jesus to death, but they found none. So it suggests that some time is going on while they're looking for people who are prepared to stand up and say something about Jesus that will lead to his death. They found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So it's hard to quite know what what were those false witnesses saying that somehow didn't qualify for the people that they're looking for. But at last two came forward, and remember that to put someone to death you need two false witnesses, or two witnesses I should say. (laughs) (laughs) They're two false witnesses when Naboth is killed, of course, but uh, two witnesses are needed to put someone to death. And at last two came forward who've got some element of Evidence that the Jewish leaders, in their sort of very compromised position, they're wanting to put Jesus to death, but it seems that they are sort of sifting the people who are giving some evidence and saying, no, no, yours wouldn't count. They're looking for something a little bit more solid. And two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The accusation. Is a misunderstanding, maybe deliberate, maybe not, that Jesus is going to desecrate and destroy the temple. The illusion probably goes back to what we read, for example, in John 2. But Jesus' words there were not a threat to destroy it so much as a promise to rebuild it and indeed make it glor- m- more glorious with the expectation of the Messiah. And whether their misunderstanding is intentional or not, Certainly the accusation that this man might destroy the temple is something that would be a capital offence. The crowds, of course, later at the crucifixion will echo this accusation about destroying the temple as well. And in the face of this accusation, Jesus is silent. Have you no answer? The high priest says. Why aren't you defending yourself? Why aren't you saying that what they say is wrong? Have you no answer? Here is the high priest who wants Jesus put to death, but somehow surprised that Jesus is not defending himself. What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. So the high priest sort of takes the next step, if you like, escalates it a little bit. He said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. A legal procedure, it seems, to put someone under oath, to force them not to be silent. And Jesus responds, you have said so. Passes it back to them. You have said so. They're your words. It's your way of putting it. Jesus is affirming the accusation that he's the Messiah, but he recognises their understanding of Messiah is uh, faulty at least, much more political, no doubt. I am the Messiah, but not the Messiah that you expect. But Jesus doesn't incriminate himself. He lets them make the charge But having said that, he goes on then to say, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus quoting, alluding back to Psalm 110, back to Daniel 7, using the language of Son of Man rather than Son of God, not naming God but simply saying the right hand of power or the mighty one of power. But he's alluding to the fact that, yes, I am the Messiah. Not the Messiah that you expect. And in a way, of course, his language here is even more provocative than the idea that he might, uh, well, if not destroy, at least rebuild the temple. And they're outraged. The high priest tore his clothes. I can't quite get over how many people tear their clothes in the Bible. (laughs) I think, gosh, what a waste. And who's going to sew it up? I can't sew. (laughs) So I'm I'm very reluctant to tear my clothes uh, in any circumstance, even when my football team loses. (laughs) But the high priest tore his clothes. He's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? That is, all of us are the witnesses. We don't need to find anybody else. You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? What is your verdict to the crowd who are there in the high priest's courtyard? What is your verdict, the reader of Matthew's Gospel? And the people say he deserves death. They've brought their verdict. Jesus on trial to the Jewish leaders, on trial to the crowd gathered, On trial to Peter, we'll see in a minute, and to us eventually as well. And they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Presumably Jesus is blindfolded, as Mark's Gospel says. Well, by using Daniel 7, Psalm 110, Jesus is indeed provocative but he's alluding to the fact that he is the true king and he is the one who will be sitting in the seat of kingship, of rule, of power, authority, as Daniel 7 says. But also quoting and alluding to Psalm 110, he is the great priest. And so that allusion is, a, in effect, a, a metaphorical slap in the face to Caiaphas, the high priest because the one before Caiaphas is claiming to be an even greater priest than Caiaphas was. And Psalm 110 goes on to allude to the idea of the judge. Here is Jesus judged by the high priest, but the tables are actually turned because Jesus is not only the true priest, but he's also the true and universal judge, even if Caiaphas, the crowds, don't see that, understand it or recognize it judge and priest, and the other role of a Messiah was a prophet. And here they recognize that saying, come on, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who struck you? A trivial game, in effect, humiliating game. But Jesus has just quoted prophecy from Daniel, soon to be fulfilled. That's the more serious prophet at work, not just predicting who's hit him when he's blindfolded. And, of course, earlier on, before today's passage, the prophecy was, you'll deny me three times, and immediately now we go into the verses of Peter's denial, again, about to be fulfilled. There's a sense here of just those little teasing suggestions of here really is the Messiah, the true judge, the true priest, and indeed the true prophet. And throughout all of this, Jesus is come, silent, silent. Often, he's the one in control, as the whole wider picture keeps reminding us. He's the king. He's the judge. He's the prophet. He's the priest. And he's in control. What is your verdict? Was the question put to the crowd in the courtyard. Well, the Jewish leaders had already made up their mind about Jesus. They knew the verdict they wanted. They were looking to contrive it. And then Jesus' words that we've just seen in verse 54 mean that they have no need for further witnesses. But what about Peter? We've already been told he's there. He's at a distance. There's an element of bravery to be there but cowardice to stand back. What's his verdict? What does he make of this Jesus whom he's followed for perhaps three years? Well, a mere servant girl says to him, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. That's well, just a servant girl, young presumably, little threat, dismisses her, denied it Before all of them, there are other people listening it seems. I don't know what you're talking about. But when he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now Peter's denial has an added oath. He denies it, not simply saying, I don't know what you're talking about, but rather with an oath, I do not know the man. I wasn't with him. I don't even know him. The lie grows. It intensifies. And then thirdly, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are also one of them for your accent betrays you. Maybe they've been thinking about it as they've heard that second servant girl's accusation. Maybe they are other bystanders. But now for the third time, the accusation to Peter that he knows or was with, associated with, this Jesus who is on trial. And now Peter's response is stronger yet again. He began to curse and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. So Peter's response is dismissive. He adds a curse and now with quite strong language, a curse and an oath. I do not know the man. His lie has grown, solidified, intensified. And the cock crowed at that very time. And the cock crowed. And Jesus, the prophet, who doesn't stoop to the games of who struck you when you're blindfolded, his prophecy comes true. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And on the third denial, the cock crowed. Just as Jesus said. A prophecy fulfilled sadly and to a degree tragically. Three times in the garden, Jesus had prayed for strength, for the trial that was ahead. And at the same time, three times, I think, Peter dozed and not strengthened, his flesh weak, spirit willing perhaps, three times he denies Jesus. What a failure he would have felt. How shamed. He went out and wept bitterly. Let me tell you the most shameful and embarrassing thing that I have ever done in my life. And even now when I think of it, I realise I begin to turn red with embarrassment and shame. And I hate it when people know. It was a while ago. But actually I can't tell you. I can't open myself up like that. Too shameful, too bad. And if I did go on and say, you'd probably think you shouldn't be preaching, let alone be a bishop. But Peter, I take it, has told people what he'd done. Yes, there were bystanders around, and maybe they'd recognise Peter later on when he becomes a leader of the church and so on. But from what we know, and the evidence seems strong, Peter is the source of Mark's Gospel. And I take it that from Mark's Gospel you lead into other Gospels, though there are other experts on that here in this room. But Peter has communicated that. And it's been written down. He, he, couldn't, he didn't have to do that. This paragraph could have been left out. The prediction of the three times denial, the cock crowing, could have been left out. Peter could have been silent about that. I would have been. I wouldn't want anyone to know that. But I take it that Peter revealed that to at least Mark, maybe to others as well. Maybe by the time Mark wrote it down and Peter told him, other people already knew as well. But how humiliating and embarrassing for the first bishop of Rome, the one who wrote two letters at least in our Bible, the leader of the church, to deny Jesus like that, even when it had been predicted by Jesus to him. I mean, come on, if someone says to you, if Jesus says to you, you're going to deny me three times, we'd be be staunchly wanting to fight that, wouldn't we? But here is Peter, I take it, prepared for the world to know his most shameful and embarrassing act ever. Of course, the Bible's very real. It doesn't gloss over the failures of the heroes, whether they're an Old Testament hero or a New Testament one. But here I think is Peter being prepared to let the world know of his great and shameful act. How can he do that? It seems to me he can only do that by a deep and transformative understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus for him. Because what matters for Peter is his standing before God as one forgiven, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, one who. Is able to say that I've been washed by his sins. I've been saved by his death. Words that he wrote, for example, in his first letter, chapter 2. Peter knew the greater glory of the cross, greater than even this shameful, embarrassing act of denial and failure. And I don't think I could tell you my most shameful thing. because I still compromise by what do other people think of me? And whilst I know God has saved me and forgiven me, there is still that, that competing motive and, and emotion about, well, what do other people think? But Peter was prepared for the world to know of his failure because he understood and grasped and was grasped by the greater grace of the cross. We're like him. Our flesh is weak. We fail God, maybe shamefully and humiliatingly in our lives. We, like him, need the same mercy of the same cross, of the same saviour. So what's your verdict of Jesus? Has the grace of the cross gripped you like it did for Peter? The one judged is the judge who's coming, who knows our hearts and our thoughts. The one sentenced by the high priest is indeed the great high priest. The one ridiculed to prophesy is the prophet greater than Moses. And he will die acclaimed above his thorned head, King of the Jews. The surprising Saviour, our innocent Lord. Amen.